tell you what, if you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8. And while you're turning there, I want to just remind you of some things. Number one, it's been a couple of weeks, and so I want to make sure that we're up to speed on what we've been looking at and not forgetting. And if you have forgotten, I encourage you to please go to the website, gbcportage.com, go to the sermons tab, go back to a few, and we're talking about what it is to build up the body. And the big thing that we were talking about for about three weeks or so is something that we call the ancient principle. And the ancient principle is, is not to be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. It makes no sense to get the instructions if you're never going to utilize them. It's just profoundly foolish. And so our encouragement from the epistle of James is, is no, utilize Bible doctrine, but you have to be careful. And the reason why you have to be careful is, is because you do not utilize the teachings of scripture like you do anything else. I will try hard. I will do my best. I will work up a sweat in order to make sure that everything the Bible tells me about living this brand new life is a reality in me. That equals one thing and one thing only, and that is failure. Now, don't be surprised. God's not surprised. Getting down in the dumps about our failures doesn't need to be a situation that puts us out of commission. We don't need to get depressed and discouraged. Why is that? What else were you going to do? I often think that when things don't go well and I can see where my hands were all over a situation, it's like, what in the world was I thinking was going to happen out of this? Somebody set that on fire and get it out of here. It's good for nothing. It is only what Christ does through us. And if you remember, we saw that encapsulated in such verses as Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And if that's what you're concerned with, everything else is added to you. It almost seems effortless, doesn't it? Here's the amazing thing. It pretty much is. The only difference that needs to be made in our lives now that we are believers in Jesus Christ is that our minds have to be further and constantly convinced that everything that God has told us here is absolutely true. That's it. In fact, I've I've been talking with some of you about this, and you're going to hear me say this a lot more as the weeks go on. We need to get rid of this idea of living the Christian life. Get rid of it. You go to the Bible bookstore. Do they have those anymore? Some of them are going out of business, right? Get online. Okay, you're online. Sorry, let me update for you millennials out there. You're online, you're looking around, and and the topic that you're looking for, Christian life, Christian living, that kind of thing. Get rid of it. Get rid of that whole idea. Because the idea of living the Christian life really puts the burden on you and what you're doing and how well you're doing and if you're doing enough. I tell you, that's law. That is not grace. Instead, let's replace that wording with this, living the Christ life. I mean, that's what we want, right? We want Jesus manifested in us. We want to be a vehicle in his hands. We want to be moldable for his purposes where we are getting out of the way and we are yielding to him and saying, Jesus, whatever you want here. Now, I'm going to tell you this, and this series is a long series about building up the body. It's going to be forever, okay? Some of you get that reference. Good job, Smalls. It's good. So anyway, but some of you are not going to like this. And the reason is, is because my goal by the time that we are done 
is that each one of us would assume our place as being a crucified person. That's exactly what the Bible calls for, is for us to be crucified to this flesh and to be alive unto God because of everything that Jesus Christ has done for us. Crucifying the flesh is never fun. In fact, you're probably familiar with this, right? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? Everybody know the problem with that? Living sacrifices crawl away. Can't keep them on the altar long enough. You can't keep them on the cross long enough. And that's my goal, is that every one of us in here would stay on the cross and get out of Jesus' way. It's not going to be fun. What's going to be fun for me? Not for you. I'm just kidding. Lord knows I desperately need it too. So, our problem is, is that we're already pre-programmed into this world. You're going to make decisions according to the flesh. I'm going to make decisions according to the flesh. Here's how that goes. We're presented with a problem and we go, hmm, I think we should do this. No prayer, no study, no pursuit of God, no drawing off of Scripture, no reflecting upon what Jesus has already built in us, no discerning of the Holy Spirit, and therefore... No power. A lot of show, a lot of razzle-dazzle, a lot of, that sounds like a good idea. That's usually the first step in failure. So decisions of the flesh are already pre-programmed in us, and just because we're saved doesn't mean that that goes away. For that to be the case, we'd have to completely get rid of the body. And that's the Lord's doing, not ours. Now I want to show you an example of this. In Romans chapter 8, Let's start in verse 6. If you don't have a Bible or something, if you were too prideful to ask one, don't let that hurt you. We want you to have one. I'm just messing. Romans chapter 8, look at verses 6 through 8. For the mind set on the flesh is what, church? Pay attention to that. Because this is not talking about people who don't know Jesus. Paul is way too far in this letter to be talking about unbelievers. He's talking about the way we live our lives. If our minds are set on the flesh, it's death. But the mind set on the Spirit is what? Life and peace. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, don't I already have eternal life? Yes, you do. But does not Jesus want more for you? Absolutely. In fact, He wants everything for us that is true of Him because He is in us. So he wants us to know that our greatest maximum potential that will ever be reached has absolutely nothing to do with us and completely, totally, 100% everything to do with him. So when we talk about life here, we're talking about the abundant life. When we're talking about peace here, we're talking about what Paul tells us in Philippians 4, a peace that passes all understanding. I don't get it. Jesus just gives it. Everybody understand that? So now look where he goes at next in verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh, pay attention, is hostile toward God. Think about it, church. If your mindset is set on the flesh, you are automatically in a position of hostility toward him. Does that mean I'm not saved? No! Not at all. You're part of his family. That can never be taken away from you. It's all secured in the work of Christ. If you could undo that work, you'd be more powerful than he is. I don't think anybody wants to bet on that pony. 
So you are completely bound up in Christ. But is there a distortion in our fellowship with him? Yes. We actually become hostile to the things of God because it's not the way that I, and I capitalize that even though it's already capitalized in English grammar, I want it. Because it's not my way. And what does this create? It creates a friction in the fellowship with our God. Notice it says here, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject, and let me give you a real good word that kind of removes the subject, and that seems kind of, oh, I can work around that. Let me give you the word that hurts. Submit. It does not submit to him. It does not bow, take the place of voluntary humility, and steps out of the way saying, Lord, whatever you want, your will be done. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's an impossibility. found an excellent quote by Andrew Murray. I encourage you, read some Andrew Murray. It's good stuff. Wouldn't mind to throw that up there for me, Mitch. There are Christians that begin with the Spirit, but end with the flesh. That's actually the Galatian era, if you ever read the book of Galatians. They are converted, born again through the Spirit, but fall unconsciously into a life in which they endeavor to overcome sin and be holy through their own exertion, through doing their best. They ask God to help them in, their, these, in these their endeavors and think that this is faith. And they do not understand what it is to say, in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And that therefore they are to cease from their own endeavors in order to do God's will wholly and only through the Spirit. We're going to talk about what it is to build up the body of Christ. What it is to live the Christ life what it is to be walking in the spirit because here's the thing if we talk about spiritual gifts and if we talk about edifying and building up one another if we're doing it in any other way than in the spirit than walking in christ we have found that the person looking to receive the glory in the situation is us and us alone we are trying to be god we all struggle with this. Let's not get shocked or kind of, good grief, why in the world is he talking about I'm talking about this because this is the epidemic in the church. It's really not all these other issues that many people would want to put their minds on. The greatest enemy of the church, I would say, is not even necessarily Satan. All he does is tempt us. We're the ones that are willing to go into the realms of sin to say, no, God, I won't let you do that. No, God, you cannot have your way in this part of my life. No, God, that's Sunday only. I always like those people. They're fun. Sunday only, Christians. I love it. That's a scary place to be when we're talking about the creator of all things. When we talk about the grand scope of the gift that is salvation in Jesus Christ. It's so much more than just, I don't have to go to hell now. So much more. And it's important that we take that in. I was talking with Kenny about this because I know nothing about anything. And Kitty does. And I knew he was the man to ask because the top of his hair is so straight. You could balance a book on that or a library full. But I asked him, I said, when somebody goes to lay a foundation on, on a surface, what do they got to do? 
He says they go in there and they do all kinds of testing. They've got to check out the soil. It's very meticulous. They've got to make sure it's going to hold. And if for some reason they find a deficiency going on, they've got to bring in some bedrock or something in order to strengthen what the foundation is going to be laid on. You want a sound foundation. But that sound foundation always goes on something. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is what we are placing the foundation of Jesus Christ on, do we have complete confidence in? Are we thinking correctly about the plot of land of which our foundation of Christ is laid? And he says, once you get the testing done, you come up with what's called an approved standard. And I thought that was interesting. Because an approved standard means that it went through some sort of meticulous requirement, but it also means that it measured up completely. And I think it's important for us to think along those lines. Why is that? Because what we're going to talk about today is is that God himself, Yahweh Elohim of the Bible, the creator of all things, the only true God, is the approved standard. Now when we think about this, I'm going to bring three Verses to your mind, we're only going to deal with one, but I want you to mull them over. Good word, ruminate. I'm sure you'll find that in Scrabble next time you play it. Ruminate. Let it ruminate in your mind. I'm going to ask you to write these down. If you want, just jot them. We could turn there if you want, but in the, in the, in the hopes of making best use of our time here, I want you to write them down and just promise me. Everybody raise your right hand. So, why are some of you so reluctant? Raise your right hand. I promise that I will at least think about. (laughs) See, I'm cutting you some slack. These verses we're going to look at today. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Making sure I got you. That's good. Let me give you three here. You've probably heard us bring some of these up over and over. It's fine. Number one, Proverbs 1-7. R-U-M-I-N-A-T-E. Ruminate. That's not what I want you to look up. Proverbs 1.7, dictionary.com, then the scriptures. I like it. Proverbs 1.7, let's bring it up, Mitch. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You've heard me say this before. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Does everybody see the persons involved? Does everybody see the standards that are set? Does everybody see that a passage like this tells you something about yourself? Do you see you in this verse? See, there's a lot more to this than just regurgitating it. How about the next one? John 17, 3. John chapter 17, verse 3. Here's what it says. This is eternal life, that they may know you. This is Jesus praying to God, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Again, while Jesus is praying here, notice that you see the the characters involved. You see the measurement. You see the standards involved. And if you look hard enough, you'll see yourself. And the last one that we're going to deal with, in fact, I'm going to ask you to turn there for this one. 
You've heard me bring this up before. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah 9. This is the one we're going to deal with. In fact, if you can't find it in your Bible, just lift up your thigh and you will find it sitting there on the chair. Everybody got it? Hold up your card. This is our memory verse. This is going to be our memory verse for February and March. The reason is is because it's front and back. There's a lot to it. Okay? Let's do this. Let's read it together, please. Here we go. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Now again, you look at this verse. Notice you see the characters involved. You see the standard set in place. And if you will let it ruminate, you will see yourself. And that's where I want to get at. That God alone is the approved standard. Let's start by looking at this verse. Look at verse 23. The word for Lord here, notice it's all caps. This is Yahweh. This is his self-given name to Moses. I am that I am, the self-existent one, the one who relies on nothing in order to be who he is. He needs nothing. So notice, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Is he denying that people can be wise? No, but notice what he's saying is, is there's no place for boasting in it. Now, another word that is used for boast here that can be translated out of this Hebrew word is the idea of glorying in something that we glory in. What's the last thing you gloried in? Don't say it out loud, but think about it. What's the last thing that you talked loftily and fondly about? What's the last thing that made you go, yeah. I know for you, Ruth, right? You just had a procedure on your eye. You see everything now with that eye. (laughs) Work in progress. It's okay. But man, it's a good feeling, isn't it? When you're able to see things more clearly, that's something that you want to talk about. When people are wise, they want to talk about it. They want to constantly bring it up. They would like people to know How smart they are. Why is that? Because the focus is then on what? Them. But it's not really. Talk about that in a second. How about the second point that he gives us here? And let not the mighty man boast in his might. Tell you what. Art Gray is showing me up in a race. Art, you're 65? You're 64? When I first got here, he asked me if I want to go running. He doesn't run with me anymore. I drag him down. I'm too slow. We're getting to mile marker point two. You know how it is. You're getting ready to pass out. You're just asking, please, Lord, rapture now, please. And Art's walking next to me. 
sad affairs. He could boast in that. Because oftentimes we see that and wisdom as a means to an end. We're going to get things fixed. Boy, guys have a hard time with this. What's the problem? I'll fix it. Sit down. Give me two things. It's all going to pot. Because guys can't do more than one thing. It's true. Ladies, am I wrong? You give us one thing, we're amazing. You give us two things, you even wonder why you even said anything after a while. Why'd I give him two things? I knew it wasn't going to work out. Sweetheart, am I lying? Yep, see? It's truth. But, but when we're looking for that for answers, and we're willing to tell other people about how we were able to answer in that moment, has that drawn the attention to us? Yes, but no. How about the next one? What's the next issue that he brings up about where people would be likely to boast? Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Some people have more monetary capability than others, and sometimes we've run into the trap of thinking that money will fix it. Or we've equated finances with security. That's a dangerous place. In fact, isn't that what we call our savings account? Our safety net. Our emergency fund. We brag in that we have an emergency fund. Smart thing to do. Yeah, there we go with our wisdom again. Everybody see how that works? Did we have the willpower to do it? Yes, we did. Oh, there's our strength. Now, am I saying that's bad? No, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying it's not worth glorying in. Because here's the strange things that you find about this. If you notice when you deal with wisdom, if you notice when you deal with strength, and if you notice that you deal with riches, these really don't say anything about you. They're externals. They're things about you. They're things that describe you. They're ways that we would like to promote to people in order to be characterized. Does that make sense? It's ways that we would like to be perceived. We boast in what we want people to know about us. If I've got something to say here, if I want to inject myself in this conversation that's going on, what do I want these people to know about me so they will see me how I want them to see me? Everybody see that it's all about control? And so I'm going to talk about this wise decision that I made. Why is that? So they will perceive me as wise. Well, I'm going to talk about how strong I am in this situation so that they will marvel at my strength and maybe they'll ask me to come so I can be strong in front of them. How about with riches? Boy, I tell you what, if we can just shell it out and get people's attention, boy, it's good to paint the picture of how we want people to see us. For you, is that a mask? It's a mask of our own making. It's like we've all got our own little Mr. Potato Head going on. We'll put the tongue wherever we want to, but people will see what we do. It won't tell us who we truly are. It's externals. And here's the beautiful thing about externals. Not only do we control what other people think about us as much as we can, but if we feel that the standards are not being met at a good approval rate, and politicians are famous for this, we will just shift the externals, to get a greater approval. It's all about how people perceive us. 
Now, the Bible has a word for that, and it's going to hurt. And it applies to me probably much more than every one of you. And it is the word hypocrite. We could probably add liar in there as well. Because what does it really take to get past what we want people to think about us? What our true worth is. What our true value is. Because the things that we're boasting and glorying in, we're saying, no, in my perception, this is valuable. Wisdom's valuable. Being rich is valuable. Having strength is valuable. This has weight to it. I hope today that maybe this is going to be a reflection that causes you to see things differently in the hand of God tearing off that facade. Because what does God tell us? Notice he's not denying these things are a reality, but in verse 24, it turns a corner. And look at what he says. But let him who boasts, if you're going to glory, if you're going to speak, if you're going to shout, if you're going to share, if you're going to broadcast, if you're going to fill out that godless status bar on Facebook, did I hit you where it hurts? Maybe just a little bit. I only mean to tickle you. Don't get mad. Let him who boasts, if you got something to say, look what it says. Boast of this. That he understands and knows me. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stop and think for a minute. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You can actually know God more. Now, we're not talking about just anyone. This isn't like meeting a celebrity, you know? You got so close to Matthew McConaughey, you could tell how stinky he was. Not that kind of thing. He doesn't wear deodorant, by the way, if that doesn't make any sense. He's real proud of that. Yeah, now some of you are like, eh, right. But that's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about the one who, when there was nothing, he spoke, and then there was something. Nothing before, but all he's got to do is say a word. And there it is. We're talking about the one that understands our physical makeup more than we understand. We're talking about the one that holds the very days of our lives in his hands. They're not like sands through the hourglass. Our very life is in his hands. We're talking about the God that works with me daily to conform me to the image of his son. That's how much he loves me. That's how much he loves you. The idea that if I have something to say, I could actually say, I understand God. Does that sound presumptuous? Does that sound like gloating? Does it sound like gloating? Tell me. How come everybody's silent? It does sound like gloating, doesn't it? What is God saying through Jeremiah here? Boast about it. Tell people. Glory in it. I know God. And he's given me 66 books to know him more. Over and over again. And I never, good grief, we've heard John 3.16 so many times. Have you gotten John 3.16? 
Have you reflected on the beauty of John 3.16? Have you seen the grace pouring out of John 3.16? Let me tell you this, guys. We will never exhaust John 3.16. If John 3.16 is all we had spoken out of the mouth of God, it would still be enough to bowl us over and put us in humility before him every day. But because we value and put worth on external things about ourselves, our vision is clouded of the real thing to glory in. God gives a directive to his rebellious people Israel. You want something fun? Read the beginning of this chapter. They're in a heap of mess. And he is setting their path straight. That he understands and knows me. That I am, and he uses the word on purpose, Yahweh. For the Jewish mind, that immediately ignites the self-existent one who needs nothing in order to be who he is. He is reliant on no one. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our volunteerism or our participation to get his job accomplished. But here's the great thing about the loving God of the Bible. He wants it. He wants to work hand in hand with every single one of us. But I will tell you this, we have got to get out of his way so he can do his work. And this starts with thinking differently. We have got to be boasting about the only things that are really worth talking about. I am Yahweh who exercises loving kindness. That's his loyal love. It never leaves. He's always committed to us. Justice, that means that all things will work out exactly as they should. And notice that justice and righteousness are standard words according to his standard on earth. For I delight in these things. He takes joy in the very things that are part of the makeup of who he is. That's someone worth talking about. That sets all the externals aside and it stops putting the focus on who we want to perceive to be with people so that we can control that. And it says, God, I can't control anything because you're the only one worth talking about. You control it all. This is the selfishness of I. That I want to control it. It's no coincidence that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why? Because God's not threatening. He doesn't need to get angry. He can just do it. Everybody see the greater thinking that's sitting before us, yes? Let's deal with two instances in the book of Isaiah that this realization is met, okay? Turn with me to Isaiah 6. Turn back just a little bit. Isaiah 6. Remember, it's not boasting in anything about ourselves or how we want people to see. It's the idea of boasting that you understand and you know the Creator God. Now, you're probably familiar with Isaiah 6. Isaiah is a prophet. He gets an incredible glimpse into what a worship service looks like in heaven. Okay? Charismatic's got nothing on him. Okay? God's got it going on in spades. It's beautiful. So here it is. He sees it. Isaiah's taking it all in, a heavenly vision. And here's his conclusion. I think it's amazing that he doesn't go, wow, I'm part of this. He doesn't. It's not about him at all. But it is a self-assessment of his worth and his value when he gets a glimpse of the approved standard. Look what he says. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. What does it mean to ruin something? 
Destroy? Some of your translations say destroy. I'm destroyed. What is it? I'm lost. Undone. I can't keep it together. The idea here of the word in the Hebrew is actually cease or cut off or destroyed. I'm obliterated. I'm seeing God and the worship of him as it truly is. Without any pleasantries, without any ways that we've tried to concoct what that might look like. Some of us still think angels look like the Charmin babies on the commercial. It's not them. These are places where our thinking needs to be corrected about this. Because the worship of God, the creator of all things, is so much greater than what we're giving credence. And notice the first thing that Isaiah concludes is an assessment of his worth and value because he's compared it to the standard that is worth boasting about. And what does he conclude about himself? I'm destroyed. It's over. I cannot stand. Now, some of us would sit here and we say, wait a second, we're talking about Isaiah. We're not talking about Joe Schmo that's hanging down at the Super Duper Mart. We're not talking about that guy. We're talking about the prophet Isaiah, who held so fast to the word of God that he was sawn in two from neck to groin. That's how he gave his life when he was called to serve, who would not compromise God's word, who was given such great prophecies about the birth of the Messiah. That Isaiah... What's his conclusion before God? Nothing. I'm nothing. I've got nothing. Everything I thought I had ends up being nothing because of the presence of God. Look what he says here. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Notice the first thing he does is confess his guilt. Notice the first place where his thoughts were drawn to. Whatever things have passed my lips, I'm wrong. In fact, we know this, right? Out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart, what? Speaks. Notice it reveals who he truly is inside. In fact, everybody see that it's listed as unclean lips? Everybody see that? This is the language of a leper. In the law, you deal with Leviticus chapter 5, 2, and 3, I think it is, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. You deal with the idea that when somebody would go around confessing, unclean, unclean, it was the idea of everybody get back. Because in my present condition, I am unworthy and unfit for fellowship and worship before Yahweh. And so I need to sit out of coming before him because of where I'm at. Isaiah the prophet has concluded this. I'm a man of unclean lips. And not only that, and this one kind of hurts, right? And I live among a people of unclean lips. Not only am I destroyed, my people are destroyed. We're all wrong across the board when we seek to get a glimpse of God. He says here, for my eyes have seen. I think it's interesting because he doesn't say Yahweh. Who is he? The king. Don't lose that, church. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. 
Now, I don't know about you, but the very designation of a king symbolizes worth and value. Yes? There is worth and value that comes with an office. Notice that the whole subject of worth and value, what our foundation of Jesus Christ is built upon, is listed as the self-existent king of all things. And sometimes we pass over Lord of hosts. What does that mean? It means the self-existent one amongst all celestial beings is what it means. The supernatural realm bows in his presence. That's what we're talking about. Everybody notice there's no boasting of wisdom. There's no boasting of might. There's no boasting of riches. Why? Because none of those things mean anything in the presence of God. Those things are fractional. Those things are material. Those things are gotten mainly by our cunning and our craftiness. Before the Lord, they're laid bare. Before the Lord, they become shown as their true value. Now, there's another instance where this takes place, and you're familiar with this. This is a verse that's quoted a lot of times. Turn with me over to chapter 64. Isaiah 64. Isaiah chapter 64. I'm going to ask you to look at verses 5 and 6. And there's a lot more to this. I wish we had time to get into it. But look at this first thing it said in verse 5. You meet him who rejoices in righteousness. Now think about this real quick, okay? Isaiah says that God meets with those people who rejoice in righteousness. Everybody see the standard of righteousness? Yes? Everybody see the bragging that's taking place, the boasting? How's it listed? What's the word? Rejoicing! Let me ask you, what's the last thing you rejoiced over? Rejoiced over. See, that's too churchy of a word. We don't carry it out on the Monday through Saturday. You know, I rejoiced at my paycheck this week because there was extra money. Do we do that? We don't use the word rejoice, do we? The things that we find glory in, we don't use the word rejoice. Notice here, it's intentional. Boasting about righteousness. And why is that? God meets with that person. Does everybody see it? Does everybody see it? Is everybody asleep at the wheel? Thank you. Do we need to become charismatic for everybody to wake up? Because here's what it says. If we rejoice in righteousness, that's God's standards, not ours. If that's a place where we find reason for boasting, God meets with you. Does God meet with you? Think about it. Moving on. Who remembers you in your ways. I, I thought it was incredibly interesting. It doesn't say who remembers you in their ways. Notice it's not about as my day goes on. It's just a casual occurrence that pops in my mind and heart. And I say, thank you, Jesus, for today. Notice it's not that. It's somebody who is consumed with how Yahweh works. What are his attributes? And am I pondering upon them? Why is that? Because that is truth and that's what renews the mind who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? I love it. I love this. Because the conclusion reached is, is because sin was prolonged for who knows how long of a time, it seemed like grace had no place. Church, is that true? 
Raise your hand if you can outsend the grace of God. Well, are you saying that we all have a license to sin? Well, I don't know what DMV you went to to get that. But let's put it in very plain phrases that makes everybody uncomfortable. When you're a believer in Christ, can you do whatever you want and God still love you? Yes. Because that's just how free grace is. Because the whole fact that grace has been made available to us had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with Jesus on the cross. And we don't work or obey to stay saved. We stay saved because Jesus did an awesome job. That's why we stay saved. Now, here's a question. Is God a father? Does he paddle his kids? Oh, yeah, you're not getting away with nothing. Can you do it? Yes. Will he train you? Yes. He has no problem bending me over his knee and letting me know I was wrong. Son, he has no problem. See, it's not that we're getting away with anything. It's not that we're pulling one over God's eyes. It's that we're seeing him for who he truly is. And we're recognizing, yeah, through periods of prolonged sin, there is discipline. There is discipline. But he wouldn't discipline you if he didn't love you. If he didn't care, he wouldn't do anything. His involvement demonstrates that care. Now notice Isaiah is reflecting upon these things. And look what he says next. You're familiar with this one. For all of us have become like one who is, there's a word again, what is it? Unclean. And notice that unclean, much like the word righteousness, designates a worth and value or a standard in the situation. All of us have become unworthy. We're unworthy of you, God. Look what it says after that. And all of our righteous deeds, now stop. Is that an estimation of worth and value? It is. When's the last time you said, boy, my deeds are righteous? We'd never say that, would we? Because it sounds arrogant. Guess what? It is here. And notice what Isaiah is saying. The way that we viewed the good things that we were doing, when they've come before you in your presence, we actually recognize that they were tainted, they're filthy. They have no worth. Why? Because no longer was the standard self. The standard became God. See, we love the self-standard because we can move it wherever it needs to be. Oh, well, you don't like my hairstyle? You go out and get a different hairstyle. Now, I don't want to hurt anybody, but I am going to ask this question. Ladies, When's the last time you changed something about yourself because of something that another woman thought? And forget Oprah for a second. Let's just leave her out. Did it happen? Don't lie. Lord knows. How easily we want to meet that standard. That standard of self. Completely self. In fact, we call it a word, don't we? Self-conscious. And because we're self-conscious, we want to improve ourselves so that we will garner better self-esteem. Where is Jesus in this whole thing? Why did somebody put the Savior on the shelf and put us up in the front line? Why aren't we talking about Jesus' esteem? Nobody wants Jesus' esteem. We all want self-esteem. That's a scary place to be, man. Because what it is, is it tells us that 
when you graduate out of high school, you actually go back to middle school. The class is just much, much larger. That's a frightening place to be. Look what it says here. Our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us, here's the result, wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind. Take us away. Let me drive this home in one point that hopefully we can grasp as we think about looking to God alone as the standard, the approved standard of which we are going to build our Christian life. And it's this, does God mind that we boast and brag? No, but here's one thing that he teaches us in the scriptures over and over. All boasting that we have is outside of ourselves. In the quote from Andrew Murray, he brought up a verse. In me, that is, in my flesh, lies no good thing. And it doesn't get better. If we want a proper view of how to start off right in the Christian life, it is a view of self as nothing. And God is everything. Because when we don't have that perspective, we've started wandering off to the side. We're in the weeds. When my son plays Mario Kart, he's got that little wheel out, determined face. I tell him, I say, buddy, if you stay on the road, you'll be fine. Doing something, I look up. He's got like squirrels running around the cart out in the middle of nowhere or something. It's, I'm like, I don't even know if that place exists on this board. Where are you? Guys, we laugh because that's us. When we lose sight of God pronouncing a self-worth on us, we're in the weeds. We're playing with the squirrels. We're creating an existence that we can live with. And that is the point of the Christ life. Is that God wants to bring you and I to a point where we recognize we can't live with it. And the only way to deal with it is to recognize that we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's worth boasting. Everything that Christ is in us. Now, is this an encouraging message? I hope it is. But notice it's encouraging not in the fashion that it's about me or it's about you. No. All of it is about Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I cannot help but to to recognize that one of our needs for an acute sobriety in this issue. Maybe we need to mull over where we've made much of ourselves. Maybe the presence of our pride is hitting us harder than what it has. Thank you for the body of Christ where we can get mutual encouragement to lay down self and to put on the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the Word of God that tells us that you are the approved standard. You set 
the approved standard. Makes me think that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Only you are worthy. Only you and what you have said have value. God, I pray that these passages are not lost on us, but we would recognize what it truly is to experience the abundant life is to know you. Not us, not ourselves, but to know you and how much we need you and what desperate situations we put ourselves in when we are apart from you. God, please um, help my heart, help my mind to constantly come back to that ground zero with you, that you be made much, Lord. Father, thank you that you give us this time to reflect on these things. We pray it in the name of Christ, our life. Amen.